This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, October 1st. I'm Rob Bluey, Editor-in-Chief. And I'm Jenny Maltabano, contributor to The Daily Signal. On today's show, we'll feature an interview with Allie Beth Stuckey, best known as the conservative millennial and host of the popular CRTV podcast, Relatable. We'll also hear how one real estate agent is trying to transform the city of Detroit 10 years after the financial collapse left many of its homes vacant and left for ruin. And of course, we'll share some of our listeners' letters and a story of a Parkland student who has a new appreciation for those whose opinions differ from his own. We're joined on today's show by Allie Beth Stuckey, host of the popular CRTV podcast, Relatable, and probably best known to our listeners as the conservative millennial. Allie, welcome to the Daily Signal podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you've had a busy day already, um, appearing on Fox and Friends and talking to conservative members of Congress. Uh But before we get to some of those issues, I want to first have you tell your own story to our listeners, how you got started and what motivates you. Yeah, so I got started kind of in 2015. I usually say 2016, but 2015 is when I started speaking on college campuses to specifically sorority girls about the importance of voting in the primaries. Um, It was just kind of an awakening I had one day that, wow, this is a real need. My very informed friends, I wasn't in college, I just graduated, but my very informed friends and people younger than me, um, informed in a lot of ways, are not informed when it comes to politics, and they're not even planning to vote in the primary. This is not good. This is a big deal. So um, I just created this nonpartisan presentation and started asking sororities at the University of Georgia. I was living in Athens, Georgia at the time. um, If I could come and speak pro bono to their sororities about the importance of voting in the primaries, had no idea and really no intention of this becoming my career. I mean, maybe kind of in the back of my mind, but I wasn't thinking that at the time, but the presentation did well. I started getting requests from other organizations and sororities, and then I started started thinking, okay, maybe I want to do this from a more partisan perspective. So I started the blog, The Conservative Millennial, at the beginning of 2016, and then it was a few months of doing that. I still had a full-time job. I was a publicist and a social media strategist. And um, it was a few months of doing that before it really started to take off. I mean, I didn't have any followers at first. It was just like your normal blog. I mean, you probably all have friends from college who like started this blog and they thought that it was going to be this amazing political or fashion blog. And it's like, oh my gosh, it never went anywhere. And this person totally abandoned that idea. I think a lot of people probably thought it was that. I probably thought it was that at first. Um, But then it ended up taking off after I started doing these videos that became popular and I didn't have any kind of like sponsors or politicians behind me or organizations or money funding, anything like that, or even any equipment. I didn't even have any lights or microphones. It was just me on my phone in my living room. And thankfully, that ended up kind of picking up with a young audience. And then uh, from there, we moved to Dallas. My husband's job took us to Dallas, where I'm actually from originally. Started working at The Blaze through a series of coincidences. The videos that I was doing there did well. Uh, And then I started working at C. TV at the beginning of 2018, so this year. Um, and then I speak on college campuses every month. They speak to Republican organizations, uh, even corporations like Marathon Oil is somewhere I was a, a few weeks ago, just talking about the importance of engaging millennials and how to engage millennials, how to reach out to them. And so that's kind of what I, what I specialize in. And it's really just 
become become a career for me. So I do have the podcast that I do twice a week called Relatable. We approach culture politics in the news from a Christian conservative perspective. And uh, it's been it's been really fun. I, I love what I do. And I still love that college age, particularly female audience that's just figuring everything out. That's really uh, my niche. And it's been fun to dig into that. Well, Ali, clearly you're having a large impact. I know a lot of my friends are big fans oh, of yours. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, what is it like being so involved in politics, but living in Texas outside of the swamp? Yes. So I like that. I was actually talking to my Uber driver about that yesterday. He was like, oh, you know, it's great that you're in D.C. There's so much opportunity here. Are you ever going to move here? And maybe, who knows where where life could take me. I, I could move here. But I actually like living outside of New York or D.C. just because I feel like I'm not caught up in the weeds of the swamp uh, and the weeds of politics. Politics and the media, they can both be really ugly games. They don't have to be, but they can be. And I'm just glad I'm not in the thick of it. Like, I have such a... Uh, great just like I don't want to say my life is slow paced because it's really not I'm traveling a lot but when I'm in Dallas I'm just separated from all of that I live in just this like little suburb with my husband and my two cats and my dog and we just have like a very simple peaceful life we go to a small church got our community I just I just prefer that pace and I prefer the freedom and if I want to step out of all of this craziness all I have to do is put my phone down you know Um, and people talk about I mean Y'all live in D.C. I'm sure it's a wonderful, great place in a lot of ways. But people talk about just kind of the nastiness sometimes of some of the people that live and work here and are in this industry. You feel like you have to watch your back all the time. I don't feel like that. I'm just kind of in my own world. And yeah, it's nice to have that separation. Well, Jenny, as a native Texan, I think you probably identify yeah, with some of that. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elliot, you mentioned that you were talking to members of Congress. So I want to ask what advice you have for them, particularly when it comes with connecting with millennials. Yeah, so relatability is a big thing for millennials. We really care about the person more than we care about the policy or the politician. And that is a fault of ours in that we, instead of really thinking about what we believe and thinking about what kind of policy someone represents and what it means for us, we really are just attracted to personality. Um, And while that is an issue for millennials, it's not something that's probably going to change very soon. So uh, I think that's something that conservative politicians can be mindful of and to up their likability and to up their relatability. I think the old way of being a standard politician who speaks in very uh, political politician-y terms and even the cadence and how they speak and how they relate to people, I think that way is out. Millennials see through that. We feel like that's not transparent, that's not vulnerable, that's not genuine. Well, conservatives don't have to abandon our good policies and our logical positions, but we do need to be putting forth likable candidates. And our current uh, our current politicians can also also work on being likable and relatable and genuine and kind of abandoning that old stiff politician-y feel and just talk to people like they're real people and talk about issues as if they affect real people, not just in political terms, not just in policy terms, not just in statistical terms, but personal terms. Tell me a story. The personal touch is so important. At The Daily Signal, I know we always try and we strive to tell stories about policy through personal stories that people can feel uh, connected. Well, Ali, next, I want to ask you about something that you discuss frequently, feminism. What are its major flaws, especially when you look at what's happening in the Me Too movement? Yeah. So feminism, it sounds very righteous and it sounds 
like a very worthy cause because if you press a feminist or if you say, well, I'm not a feminist to a feminist, they say, oh, you don't believe in equality. That's all feminism is. It's just equality between men and women. Well, actually, no, it's not. And we're already seeing that. And I actually think parts of the Me Too movement are good that some victims are empowered to truly speak up about their trauma. I think that's great. But a flaw of the Me Too movement is that it glorifies victimhood rather than just bringing light to real trauma. It glorifies victimhood and it elevates accusers much way above the accused to where we have gotten to the point to where we have to, quote, believe all women unconditionally. And that represents a flaw, not just in the Me Too movement, but also in feminism, because that is not equality. Um, Believing all women is not equality. You are asking for special treatment. You are saying we're not supposed to believe men because they're men, but we're supposed to believe women because they're women. And they don't even really mean that. They really mean we believe women that are useful for our agenda because they don't believe Ashley Kavanaugh when it comes to her husband. They don't believe the 65 women who vouch for Kavanaugh's character. Um, But that just shows that they really want what feminism really wants is special treatment and in particular special treatment for leftist women. Um, That's not equality. And it's also hypocritical because they say that they're for empowering women. I find that to be very condescending, that I need special treatment in comparison to a man. I don't think so. I think that I can get where I want to go based on my merits and my hard work. I don't need any handouts from you. Uh, But feminists are constantly in this conundrum of uh, women are are simultaneously so strong, so powerful, we don't need no man. And also, oh, we're helpless victims of the patriarchy. Allie, conservatives have a lot of misconceptions about millennials based on different things, how they differ from previous generations. I know personally myself, I'm not a millennial, but my brother is. You're not? I'm not. You look like a millennial. I'm just on the border. Wow. Wow. Jeannie can vouch for me. You look so young. That's a compliment. (laughs) Well, thank you. But I want to ask you, you know, as you're talking to these audiences, you're talking to even millennial audiences and young audiences, what are some of the misconceptions that conservatives do have about that, uh, that generation? That we are a hopeless generation, that we cannot be reasoned with, that we cannot be spoken to, that we're going to be the death of America. First of all, that argument bothers me because, first of all, we weren't raised by wolves, baby boomers. Like, we have parents. There's a reason why we are the way that we are. We didn't just teach ourselves. Um, And I have great baby boomer parents. I'm not blaming baby boomers for all of millennials' problems. A lot of it is because of our own, you know, selfishness and the things that we learned in college and just our own spoiled nature that maybe our parents did not instill in us. Um, However, we did. We did have helicopter parents more than any other generation did. Uh, We did have everybody gets a trophy mentality that our parents passed down to us when we were little. We've been told our entire lives that we're so special that we can do anything that we want to do um, and no one can tell us any differently and you are entitled to success. Well, that has really come back to bite us, especially when we see us asking for things like Medicare for all or uh, free college. Uh, We feel like we are entitled to everything. And we also feel like uh, if anything is difficult, it is unjust. And that is a true flaw of millennials. But we are not hopeless. I mean, if you look at there's there is a statistic out today uh, that says that millennials actually might be uh, 
might be turning the tide when it comes to marriage. So right now, I think the divorce rate is 50%, which is insanely high. Uh, But millennials, uh, compared to Generation X, which is the generation uh, between baby boomers and millennials, we are actually uh, more likely to reach our five-year anniversary at 35 years old than Generation X was. Now, it hasn't been very long. Millennials are, there are fewer of us getting married, and we are getting married later. But apparently, as of right now, we're staying married longer. So I think what that shows us, and we see this in a lot of different ways, millennials actually have personally very conservative and traditional values, I think. Uh, like, I think we believe for the most part in monogamy. We believe in commitment. Um And we're also very capitalistic in how we consume things and how we behave. I mean, we are the number one consumers of Uber, of Amazon, of Netflix, of all of these innovations that would have been impossible without the free market. Um, And I think all that needs to happen is bridging the gap between how millennials behave and the things that we really value and how we vote. And the gap is created by ignorance and it has to be filled with wisdom and knowledge. And that's where this relatability and this information comes in of people like us saying, okay, millennials, here's, here's, here's this gap. I'm going to fill it for you with some, you know, relatable information. Well, as a millennial myself, I find that very hopeful. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> you were recently on the Ben Shapiro Fox News yes. election special. And I wanted to ask you, who should conservatives, particularly young conservatives, be looking to as the next generation of leaders within the movement? Ben. I think Ben, I, I'm like a, a Ben Shapiro apologist. And so maybe I'm a little bit biased here. But gosh, I was just talking, I was just talking to some people from Fox News actually, and I was telling them, I was like, you know, I've talked to several young conservatives who we secretly have this thing where we will say something happens in the news and we will have our own idea, our own thoughts. And then without, it's kind of like a subconscious thing. You have your own thought, you have your own idea, you formulate your own opinion or reaction towards something, but then you'll go to Ben and you'll be like, am I, okay, what what did Ben say? Okay, 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 yes, I'm on the right track. That's what I thought too, great. Um, And there have been times where I've disagreed with him, but he is a very good, um, I think, indicator of, okay, am I on the right track? Because he calls balls and strikes. He is uh, very... I think he's very fair about President Trump, about conservatives. He's he's willing to call it his own side. So you know in listening to him that you're not just getting this biased anti-intellectual take. He's not just a partisan. Like he really is seeking truth. And there seems to be so few people that actually do that. That's what I appreciate about him. That's how I try to be as well. Of course, I'm not on the same level as Ben. He's also been doing it for a lot longer than me. And his brain is just a lot bigger than mine, a lot smarter than mine. But he is someone that I emulate in a lot of, you know, how I seek facts and how I seek truth and the way that I try to present truth. And I just think that he's a good model for young conservatives. Doesn't mean that you have to be exactly like him. I am certainly not. I think that we're very different people. We have different faiths, different styles and all of that. And not every young conservative needs to be like him. But just in the in the way of integrity and character and honesty and fairness, I think that he's a good person to look up to. Well, we're certainly a big fan of Ben's uh, as well. So I appreciate that endorsement. Now, I want to ask, because you've talked about the importance of relatability, and of course, the po- name of your podcast is Relatable. And so share with our listeners what it is you try to accomplish on the podcast. Give them a, give them a pitch for why they should listen. Yeah. So, well, I'll tell you 
what I try to do, and the reason why I think that it has been pretty su- successful, it's it's new, um, and so but we've we've gotten so much good feedback, and so so just it, it's just been a very positive response, and it's been received well, and the people that I want to be listening are listening, and that in and of itself I see as a success, and I think one of the reasons is because we don't have I don't have a production crew, I don't have a producer of my podcast, I don't have like a researcher, a writer, or anything like that. I just have a guy who helps me with my camera, and uh, but so we don't have anything like that to offer that I'm like, oh, this is this extra great, awesome production that you're not going to get anywhere else. It's not that. It's that whenever I'm writing my podcast, whenever I'm thinking about my podcast, whenever I'm speaking and choosing my language and choosing my words, I'm always thinking about one person. I think sometimes in um, when we create content, we think, okay, how do we want this to reach as many people as possible? Um, how can I appeal to a wide audience? Some people do that well. That's not ever my goal. My goal is, okay, I have one kind of person in mind. I want to talk to her. I want to talk to the girl who doesn't know what's going on in the news, who doesn't know how to fit it into her worldview, who is not sure how to comprehend all of this political stuff and fit it into her faith. How am I supposed to approach all of this from a Christian perspective, from a moral perspective? How does this actually affect my life? Will someone just fit this into the context? Um, And so that's what I try to do. It's not a news podcast of just telling you what's going on. There are plenty of great ones that do that. It's okay here are the big things that are going on right now, or here's a trend that I'm seeing. Here's how I'm trying to analyze it. Here's what I still don't know. Here's what I'm trying to figure out. And here's what the Bible has to say about it. Here's what logic has to say about it. Here's what morality has to say about it. Um, and I really think about that one 20 something girl that's trying to figure it out. But in that, we've also caught people in other demographics unintentionally, which is kind of what happens. Like you get the 32 year old mom who doesn't have time to sit down and watch Fox News all day. Uh, you get the the 55 year old dad who's like, oh, I just love this podcast for my daughters. It helps me talk to my liberal daughter who's in college. You get the 15 year old. I spoke to a high school yesterday and I had four 15 year olds come up to me and be like, I love your podcast, which is so funny because I don't think about them when I'm recording it. But you inadvertently catch these people who relate to you. But I think it's important to know your audience and to zero in on the kind of person that you want to talk to, appeal to them. And what I want someone to finish, I want them to finish my podcast thinking, wow, I feel, I actually feel smarter than when I started. I actually feel like I understand this now. And I hope that it spurs their own analysis and their own thoughts that might be better, deeper, different than what mine are. But I want it to be a building block for people to actually feel smarter about politics and smarter about culture and actually feel equipped, not just angry and not just, oh, I can spout these talking points, but okay, that gave me an interesting perspective. And I also want them to feel like, I want them to feel like, oh, that's that's someone I would want to be friends with. Like, that's someone I would want to sit down and have coffee with, not someone like, oh, oh Allie's kind of scary. Like, she kind of talks as she's, like, really intense. But, like, oh, okay. I, I mean, like, I've had one of the best compliments I ever got was from someone who emailed me or maybe she commented or sent me a message. I forget which medium it was. But she was like, I'm liberal. My whole family is liberal. But all of us listen to your podcast. And they call you the smart blonde girl. I was like, okay, I'll take that. And they said, we just like you. And that is the biggest compliment that you could ever 
pay me, that you might hate what I have to say, but you're willing to listen to me. That's that's what I want. I want it to be conversational uh, in that way. And that's anyone who is out there who's thinking about starting a blog or starting a podcast. Uh, you can totally do it. Just think about that one audience member. Think about the gap that you specifically can fill and then do it. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ten years after the 2008 financial crisis, America's economy is booming, wages are rising, and the unemployment rate is dropping. But the effects of the recession are still being felt in places like Detroit, Michigan. I recently sat down with Faye Baker. She's a real estate agent who believes hope is not lost for the Motor City. We are trying to um, basically build the neighborhoods in Detroit. Uh, So Detroit was hard hit with the economic uh, downturn that kind of took place in 2004, 2005, and uh, with the automotive industry having some issues. um, Some of the the properties that we have there were were foreclosed on actually a significant amount. And so you have a lot of blight in the neighborhood. Uh, At that point, people that could afford to leave the, the neighborhoods, they left. So you're left with a handful of people that are fighting to keep their keep their properties. They're fighting to um, basically have stronger neighborhoods, uh, but it's steady. It's on a steady decline because they can't do it on their own. So what we're working to do is we're working to bring a team of people um, that have a history of doing developments in similar areas uh, to come into Detroit, take a look at some of the areas that are hard hit. And bring resources there. And we're hoping to get dollars from HUD to to do that. Um, Right now, we are in the beginning stages of of teaching uh, development to to realtors and anyone that really wants to learn, like your neighborhood um, community leaders. Uh, So we have a three-day course that's coming up in Detroit where we'll be talking about development. And we're going to teach development from A to Z so that um, we can have stakeholders in the community that are, um, that are trying to build the community and not relying on outside resources to um, kind of like take pity on you and say, okay, here, we'll come and um, develop and you can watch us do it. We don't want to stand by and watch anymore. We want to be instrumental in getting those things done and we want to take the initiative to do it. Now, as a real estate agent, I want to ask you, because so many of us saw watching the news programs about the housing situation in Detroit and how you could purchase a home for for so little, uh, $5,000, $10,000. What is the current state of affairs there in Detroit when it comes to housing? It's pretty much the same. Um, You can still purchase houses for as little as $1,000. And what is happening is we have investors that are literally all over the world that are buying houses in Detroit. 
So they're buying these houses, but they're not taking care of the houses. They're buying it because where else can you go and buy a house for $1,000 or $5,000 and rent it out for $650 to $800 a month? You know, you get your, your rate of return is like almost immediate. So right now you still have that. You have a ton of properties that are in our land banks um, and people are still losing their houses every day. Uh, although most of the surrounding um, uh, suburbs, their values are back. So you see very little um, people that are, that are underwater on their mortgage still because back, I would say up until about three years ago, 95% of my business was short sales. Now I maybe get one or two. Um, so that, that market is gone for the suburbs, but Detroit is still struggling. And again, you do have a ton of investors that are, are picking up properties there for $5,000, $10,000. They rent them out, you know, for, you know, $850, $900. I've even seen it as high as $1,000. But even though people are paying that for rent, it's almost, it's over 50% of their income. And so housing needs to be affordable. And if a house, a house is $10,000, there's no reason why a person of low income shouldn't be able to afford, afford that or have be privy to that, that property. Uh, the reason is, is that they can't, they don't have $10,000 saved up to buy the house cash and you can't get a loan for $10,000. And nine times out of 10, if you, um, if you're low income, you won't qualify for a loan. So therefore you're stuck renting and you're giving up a significant amount of your pay to just to have housing. You have here in Washington a housing secretary, Dr. Ben Carson, yes. who himself is, has, from Detroit. is from Detroit, mm-hmm. but has has come through uh, you know poverty and and has overcome the odds. So are, are you hopeful about where where we're headed? I am very hopeful. I'm hopeful that um, because he has that background, I hope he hasn't forgotten about it, <laughs> and I hope that he sees some value in that and he understands that you know. You have some very bright people there, but they need help. And you have a lot of bright kids that deserve a a solid education. They deserve an opportunity. And just because, you know, your parents aren't in a position to to put you in the best of schools and the best of areas, we can help bring resources there and provide that. Um, Because, you know, if you foster a child now, like you take care of them now and you educate them now, they will be an asset to that community later. And so we have to start, I guess I would say, sowing a seed there. And, and then it can grow. And I'm hoping that he would be instrumental in that because, you know, he came from a similar environment. Well, Faye Baker, thanks so much for joining us on The Daily Signal. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We'll be keeping a close eye and hopefully stay in contact with you as this develops. Absolutely. Thank you. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature some of our favorites, both on this show and in our Morning Bell email newsletter. Ginny, what do we have this week? Well, first up, Anthony Alaferro writes, Any Democratic voter who claims that we do not suffer a glaring double standard is either a fool or a liar. If you are Republican and accused, you are guilty, no matter how outrageous and unlikely the accuser. If you are a Democrat, like Representative Keith Ellison, and the accuser has proof, you are innocent and the accuser gets exonerated by Democrat followers. 
And Stephanie Jeffords of Oklahoma writes, I just put in my voter application to change my party affiliation from Democrat to Republican. I have been a Democrat for well over 40 years. After witnessing the horrible display of conduct by the Democrats at Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, I want nothing to do with this party. If the Democrats don't like the process, then they need to use another forum to change it. The hearing is not a trial, as one of the Democrat senators erroneously stated, but a hearing. Kavanaugh is not a witness, but rather a nominee. The Democrat senator's actions are uncivil, unruly, inappropriate, unethical, and flat-out bad form. Their display is an embarrassment to the United States. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. Send an email to letters at dailysignal.com or leave a voicemail message at 202-608-6205. I'm Rob Bluey, Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. And I'm Jenny Maltabano. Each weekday, The Daily Signal delivers the Morning Bell email direct to your inbox. We created The Morning Bell to be your one-stop source for credible news reporting and insightful commentary on the issues that are shaping the agenda. You can subscribe today and get it delivered to your inbox each weekday morning. Sign up now at dailysignal.com. Just click on the connect button at the top of the page and subscribe today. Cameron Kasky is a 17-year-old student who attended the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School during the Parkland shooting last February. Afterward, Kasky became one of the faces of the pro-gun control and anti-Second Amendment activist. He helped organize and start the March for Our Lives demonstrations and is known for publicly berating Senator Marco Rubio during a town hall. In the, name, in the name of 17 people, you cannot ask the NRA to keep their money out of your campaign? I think in the name of 17 people... I can pledge to you that I will support any law that will prevent a killer like this No, but I'm talking NRA money. No, no, because... I, I, matter of fact, I, I bet we can get people in here to give you exactly as much money as the NRA would have. But it's not. I understand. And you're right. Can you stand up no, and right donate to that? that real quick? Okay, not a lot, but we'll get it. Now, Kasky recently spoke to Fox News' Guy Benson and Marie Harf to announce that he's left the March for Our Lives and regrets the way he treated Rubio. He is looking to encourage bipartisanship and meaningful discussions. Here's a clip from that interview. This summer, when March for Our Lives went on the summer tour that we embarked on, I met that person in Texas who's got that semi-automatic weapon because that's how they elect to protect their family. I met, I met the 50-some-odd percent of women who are pro-life, even though I thought that it was preposterous that a woman could be pro-life and not pro-choice at the time. I, I learned that... Um, a lot of our issues politically come from a, a lack of understanding of the perspectives and, uh, and also just the, the fact that so often young, young conservatives and young liberals will go into debate, uh, like I said earlier, trying to beat the other one as opposed to come to an agreement. And, right. and, you know, that's natural. It's important for things to be a bit competitive because I think competition is very important for everything. But it comes to a point where all we're doing right now is driving each other apart. I mean, the people who, who were okay with Trump will now forgive him for anything. And the people who didn't like Trump will pretend that every single thing he does is pure, utter evil. And, and it's a direction we need, to, we need to head away from. So I'm working on some efforts to encourage bipartisanship or at least discussion that is, not, that is productive and help a lot of people avoid the mistakes that I make. Well, Ginny, of course, Guy Benson and Marie Harf, again, come at it from different sides of the political spectrum. Guy being a conservative, Marie being a liberal. 
Curious to get your thoughts on Caskey's Chains of Heart. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. It can't be easy as a 17-year-old to say, look, I've made some terrible mistakes, but I'm trying to work through it. I'm trying to do some good. Clearly, that time when he helped found March for Our Lives, when he had that fiery town hall with Senator Rubio was a very emotional time. And I think now that he's taken a step back and he's on this new path of bipartisanship, he'll do more good and he'll help civil society more with his new endeavors. Well, and as we heard from a recent podcast guest, Eli Pariser, who again comes to it from a different side, from a liberal progressive perspective, having a tolerance at least to hear out somebody else's different perspectives is so important. I think that's the thing that's frustrated me personally is that it seems that they don't even want to hear most of the time. They just shut you down if you're conservative and you disagree with them. So applause to uh, Kasky for for approaching this differently. And uh, let's hope that his change of heart will maybe rub off on some of the other people who uh, who are in this position as well. Yes, I can't wait to see what he does next. All right, we're going to leave it there for today. The Daily Signal podcast is broadcast from the Robert H. Bruce radio studio at the Heritage Foundation. You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network, along with Problematic Women and the Right Side of History. All of our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review or give us feedback. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. The Daily Signal podcast will be back tomorrow with Kate and Daniel. Have a great week. You've been listening to The Daily Signal Podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit dailysignal.com.